0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, if you don't live in the
2: Northeast,
0: and you've not a Bruins fan or own an ARC,
1: you might understand what I'm going to say next. And that is, this week has been nothing short of miserable. Rains daily... Temperature here this morning was 37. Seems more like October than mid May. So, Ron, I know you live in the Northeast. You're not too far from me. And you're a Bruins fan. My condolences. So, there is a ray of sunshine. But, any glimmer of what's right in the world um, to give people, you know, firing up their wood stoves in the Northeast something to hang on to this
3: week? Clark, for me, it's too Rask between the pipes for the Bruins, all the way to the cup. But for uh, Bobby Kraft and his many minions, it's a judge's decision in Florida uh, that may let him beat a solicitation of prostitution charge that he richly, uh, pardon the pun, deserved. The judge threw out the video of what he was up to in an Asian spa, which may kill the state's case, but it hasn't yet killed the video. More rain in the forecast? <laughs> Goose, I think I speak
1: for people everywhere, and you're in Dallas, by saying, Hallelujah, no video! I know your state motto is, don't mess with Texas. You know what, Goose? I think this is one video even Texas wouldn't want to mess
4: with. I beg your pardon. This is the state that gave America the movie and Broadway show, the best little whorehouse in Texas. (laughs) There's very little we don't mess with in the great state of Texas.
1: Yeah, I don't think we're ready for a remake of that. Not yet, Goose. Anyway, well, my week was actually salvaged, not by a judge, but by Denver linebacker and friend of the show, Von Miller, when he said, yes, Ron, it's extremely hard not to like Tom Brady, unquote. Congratulations, Von. You just won my Hall of Fame vote. And speaking of the Hall, we have a Ken semifinalist with us today who was just named to the Tampa Bay Bucks Ring of Honor. That's cornerback Rondi Barber. We're also joined by ESPN.com's Rich Samini to talk about former Jets great Mark Gastineau, and we're going to hear from former Chiefs PR Director Bob Moore on the passing of former coach Gunther Cunningham and Man, I have to tell you, I knew Gunther for nearly 40 years, and there's no way I thought this was going to happen. I mean, he seemed like he was the one guy that could beat death off the plate, back it off, but, um, you know, he didn't, and it's a, it's a real tragedy.
4: Yeah, he'll be missed. I mean, he, I just love the intensity he had. He was aggressive. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to attack all the time, and off the field, you actually saw him smile occasionally.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And I know what he told NFL Films. I yell a lot, but I'm a good man. You know what he was. Anyway, we're going to hear more, a lot more, about Gunther and others. First, we're going to break. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Hey, you guys watch Game of Thrones? Anyone? Anyone?
3: Nope, but I try try to get on the throne once or twice a day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do, too, but I don't watch the Game of Thrones. Apparently, uh, everyone else but us does, and there was someone in the latest episode, so I'm told that we would recognize, and that's Green Bay quarterback and another friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, appearing as an extra. Oh, Ron, it's sort of funny, but to me, if you want a quarterback to appear on Game of Thrones, it could be Tom Brady, not Aaron Rodgers.
3: Clarkey, can we go one show without mentioning Tom Brady? One oh. show? That's all I ask.
4: Oh. Not a Game of Thrones, you just can't go one throw. segment without <laughs> mentioning him. That's second reference.
3: They didn't want him in their show, and I don't want him in this show. Get ready for more, Goose. <laughs> hey, anyway,
1: Goose, do you have any idea what the attraction of the show is? Talk to anyone who watches it.
4: You're asking the wrong guy. I have not seen one minute of it.
3: Battle okay. scenes. I've heard they have great battle scenes. Oh, wow, great. <laughs> great battle scenes in some locker rooms sometimes. Well
1: anyway, congratulations to Aaron Rodgers for another fifteen minutes or fifteen seconds of fame. And speaking of congratulations, we'd like to send some to Hall of Famer Curtis Martin, who just received a doctorate of humane letters from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side of New York City and Ron. I know you covered Curtis Martin. Pretty remarkable, on
5: or off the field.
3: Yeah, as a guy who once received the inhumane letters from uh, several schools, uh, <laughs> I can speak to that. Uh, Curtis like he he survived some horrific Uh, Times as a kid, including nearly getting shot to death, Uh, he went on not only to become uh, watched his you know his mother in a very difficult circumstances, and he went on to become a Hall of Fame runner, but also one of the humblest and most well-spoken individuals I ever met. Um, He's a guy that you hope to God your daughter brings home as her uh, future husband. I mean, he's uh, uh, everything he does. He does full out and with great class and respect. I mean, it's great honor for him, and he's I'm sure he deserves it.
1: I couldn't agree more. Richly deserving. And, and there's one other guy who's richly deserving that we'd like to mention and congratulate. And that's uh, the former head of NBC Sports. And another friend of the show, it be Dick Eversall, who is named as this year's recipient of the Hall of Fame's Pete Rosell Radio and TV Award. And who will be honored, along with the class of 2019, during the August 2nd enshrinement. And Goose, I think it's appropriate he's being honored with Pat Bolin, whom he backed and advocated for for so many weeks and actually years.
4: Yeah, they also worked very closely uh, through the years, put a lot of money in the pockets of the owners. Bowen will be in triumph primarily for his work on the TV committee, and Aversol will be in triumph for his work sitting across the table from him. TV drives the NFL, and that weekend it will also drive Canton.
1: You got it, pal. And speaking of remarkable individuals... Well, there's one that I've off on, a.k.a. Dr. Data. We about last week on our website, a website, beTalkToPayNetwork.com, we and that's New Orleans quarterback Drew Brees, who just turned 40. God, I can almost remember what it was like to be 40, Ron, right? Oh, hardly. That's all right. That's, now it's our RQ. Anyway, Goose,
4: what do you got? Well, the window is closing on the career of Drew Brees. But at age 40, that doesn't mean there isn't a season or two of greatness left. Breeze has played 18 NFL seasons and completed more passes for more yards than any quarterback in history. He has won two passing titles, a Super Bowl, and he's been a league MVP. He needs 20 or more touchdown passes this season to break the NFL career record held by Peyton Manning, who never played a down in his 40s. This season, Breeze will become just the 18th quarterback in history to take an NFL snap in his 40s 14 of the previous 17 started games in the nfl and 13 of them won games but half of the 16 played only one season in their 40s and a dozen dozen of them passed for fewer than 2,000 yards in their 40s now the oldest quarterback to throw a pass in the nfl was george blanda at age 48 in 1975 the oldest quarterbacks to start games in the nfl were steve DeBerg, warren moon and vinnie Testaverde all at age 44 the oldest quarterbacks to go to a pro Bowl were moon and tom brady both at the age of 41. brady also became the oldest quarterback to win a super bowl at 41 accomplishing that feat last season but brady obviously is an anomaly only three quarterbacks have been able to complete 16 game seasons in their 40s and brady has done it twice the other was Brett Favre at Minnesota in 2009. He also set the record for 40-year-olds with his 33 touchdown passes that season. But he played only one more season at the age of 41 and was finished. Now, if Bree starts all 16 games a season, he will become only the fifth quarterback to hit double digits in career starts in, in his 40s. Moon set the record with 33, followed by Tom Brady and Testaverde with 32 apiece. Favre started 29 games, then the fall-off is dramatic. Matt Hasselbeck is up next with eight. Brady already holds the career records uh, by a 40-year-old quarterback for passing attempts, completions, yards, and touchdowns, and he'll add to those totals in 2019 as he enters his 20th season. Brady will be the only other 40-year-old quarterback in the NFL season. Five of the previous 17, 18 quarterbacks to play into their 40s have busts in Canton. Blanda, Favre, Moore, Moon, Len Dawson of Kansas City, and Sonny Jurgensen of the Redskins. Brady will be the fifth and Breeze the sixth, but their clocks are ticking. No one in NFL history has ever beaten Father Time.
3: Well, I was there, by the way, boys, with George Blanda through through those passes in 1975 for guess who? The Oakland Raiders. It was great. Uh, So, Gooseman. You mentioned Father Time. You mentioned Drew Breeze. So this season, who are you betting on, Drew Breeze or Father Time?
4: Well, in the short term, I'm betting Breeze. You know, Brady has hit two quality seasons after he turned 40. Favre had one. You know, better training and diet allow the better players to remain in the game longer at a productive level. So I'll give Breeze two more seasons, I think, before we see an appreciable drop-off.
1: Hey, Goose, before I ask you a question, I want to ask Ron a question. Ron, I thought Goose said, no more Tom Brady references. I think I heard more about Tom Brady here than I did Drew
3: Brees. I know,
4: I know. I thought that was going to be the first reference, though. My apologies, guys. You're both conspiring against me.
1: (laughs) Well, he opened the door for me here. So, Gooseman, (laughs) if it can work for Tom Brady in his 40s, why can't it work for Drew Brees? Especially since he doesn't have to carry this team as he did three to four
4: years ago. Boy, Clark, do you think Tom Brady's are that common? That anybody who turns 40 can be Tom Brady? Come on. Well, personally, it can. In the short term, the most yardage any quarterback has ever passed for the at, for at the age of 42 was 1,600 yards by Warren Moon. That was a fall off of 2,000 yards from his previous season. The wall can hit you when you least expect it. And Brady is 42 this year.
3: Now you you mentioned diet and a few other things, but how much of this old age production with guys like Breeze and and uh. uh and, and others, shall we say? Uh, do you credit to uh, that sort of stuff? And how much do you credit to it uh, to rules changes and both uh, what guys are allowed to do, blocking and protecting these guys, and the lack of contact, and and how much to their own work ethic, training, etc.
4: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, Ron. The fact that a guy can stand back there, he's not worried about getting hit. I mean, The NFL the NFL game is about the quarterbacks. The NFL is protecting the quarterbacks. You can't hit them. They can slide. And I think the the, the bodies of Tom Brady and Drew Brees ha- have not taken the wear and tear of the bodies of Johnny Unitas and, and say, Joe Namath. I mean, those guys were done um, well before they reached 40 because of the hits they took. And you know, the, the bones that were breaking and things. The breezes and the Bradys don't have to worry about that, and that's a big part of why they're able to play into their 40s, 41, 42. So, given
1: all that, what's the line of demarcation here for quarterbacks? To I me, mean, it used to be 35. You go, 35 is about when they hit the wall, and then you look for a decline. And it seemed to be fairly constant, I'd say, 20 years ago. But now, with the quarterback protected, as you mentioned, as they are, what's that figure 37 38 39
4: well, throwaway brady is the exception I, I i i always thought it was 40 you know peyton manning retired after 39 and he looked every bit 39 when he got out um mm-hmm. very few quarterbacks have you know have, have taken it into that that extra that fourth decade uh i used to think it's 40 but uh again we're talking the exceptions um brady Favre, breeze the, these aren't your normal quarterbacks. And I would expect uh, Breeze to follow in Brady's footsteps with a couple really good seasons before I think we start seeing the tail off. I'm, I'm really curious to see if we see any kind of tail off with Brady this year because this is the year I think the new line of demarcation is 42.
1: Tell so what I'm really curious about, Ron. How many more mentions of Tom Brady we're going to have by the Goose Man?
4: <laughs>
3: God, Zero. This is a scary thought. Anyway,
1: it's Goose, scary. thanks so much. And by the way, you've just been uninvited to do Breeze's birthday party. No problem. <laughs> you still have us. <laughs> We're the Talk of Fame Network. We'll be back after this.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this is a sad week for anyone who knew former Coach Gunther Cunningham. He passed away last week at the age of 72
1: after what was described as a brief illness. Now, we all knew Gunther. I mean, he was a defensive line coach on the first team I ever covered. That was the 1982 Baltimore Colts. But we never really worked with him. Our next guest, however, did. And that's Bob Moore, former PR director of the Kansas City Chiefs, where he was a defensive coordinator and later the head coach. And Bob joins us today from New Jersey, the New Jersey Shore. And Scoopman... Um, I'll be honest with you, I think you could have knocked me over with a feather when I heard of Gunther's death. Did you know he was
2: sick? No, I didn't know he was sick. You know, Gunther was a pretty private person about his own personal life. So I'm not altogether surprised, and I have no idea. And uh, we were all kind of taken back by the fact that he passed away. But, you know, as a guy who lived and died in coaching, and when he wasn't coaching anymore, I don't know, perhaps the life went out of him to some extent. And knowing Gunther, as I did... That wouldn't surprise me if that was the case.
1: Well, knowing him as you did and knowing him as we did, I think we all know, he was one of the most intense, passionate coaches we've ever been around. And, frankly, someone who could drop kick (laughs) a clipboard farther than anyone I've ever seen. (laughs) How would you you describe him, and how do you remember him? And when the name Gunther Cunningham comes to your mind, what do you first think of?
2: Intense. An intense coach who lived and died coaching. Here's a guy who gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning and would drive to work. Uh, He would be there at 4 o'clock in the morning coaching was everything, chewing tobacco, drinking coffee, and by about 9 o'clock in the morning, he was cranked and just, you know, reaching his apex already. So it was coaching. And when you take that away from these guys, like a guy like him, you know, he really loses something. I mean, that's all the guy ever wanted to do was coach. And I don't think it's a a surprise that uh, after he was let go in in Detroit that there weren't any more jobs, that that his end would come very soon. And again, maybe that's unfair, but coaching was everything to this guy. Everything.
4: Bob, do you have a favorite Gunther Cunningham story?
2: Yeah. His uh, probably behavior on the sideline was one that ran about 15 different emotions. And one chance you'd see him absolutely furious, spitting, Next moment, he'd be upset and almost crying. Next moment, he'd be screaming again. It would just go back and forth. <laughs> and I think it's that just consistently changing. It'd be happiness, sadness, anger, disappointment, whatever it was. It was all on his face. And, you know, he had the misfortune probably of becoming a head coach right at the end of the Chiefs era with Marty Schottenheimer and Carl Peterson. That team had sort of passed its time and Gunther was sort of the guy that was selected because they probably thought they had a couple more years left to make a run at the championship when truth be told, it was probably coming to an end. And and Gunther's time was really pretty short. He was only there two years as head coach. And really, he had a 500 record. Um, but I think everybody thought at that time the players loved him because of his fireiness, and a lot of the defensive guys went to bat for him as the head head coach. And I think that it was probably a, a bad situation for him when you take a look at where the team was at that particular point.
4: Yeah, Bob, as we all know, Gunn had what would be called a colorful vocabulary. Of course, he was <laughs> born in Germany, <laughs> he learned English when he moved here. His players say he knew plenty of French. Did he teach you <laughs> any new words? Yeah, he
2: did teach me new words because occasionally I would remember him screaming all these unbelievable curse words would be at training camp, and I'd hear Marty Schottenheimer say, "Gun, don't, don't curse at him, teach him. But it just reminded me of one of the great scenes with guns. We were at training camp in River Falls, and the president, it was the presidential election, and George Bush happened to be coming through Wisconsin at the time, and he stopped by uh, Chief's training camp. And as he got out of, the, out of the car and was meeting the players, one of our players yelled, hey, gun, gun, at which point the Secret <laughs> Service agent jumped <laughs> all over these guys. And the guy says, I'm just yelling at our coordinator, guns are gun-cutting hands. <laughs> and I think of all the things I remember, that's one of the most <laughs> amazing because we got to see it up front when someone yelled, gun.
3: <laughs> what a great story <laughs> Oh my goodness uh, uh, You know many stories Obviously written about uh, Gunn uh, this week But Joe Posnowski, uh in particular said, Told a story uh, it May have been apocryphal But claiming that Gunn once drew up 73 blitzes For a 1998 playoff game Against Denver uh, Any truth to that And what does it, what does it say to his level of uh, preparedness
2: Well, Gunn was always, after every press conference would say, today we set a new record, to which the media would say, well, what what record was that? We ran 150 plays. They didn't have any idea what that meant, by the way, so it didn't mean (laughs) much. And he said, we put in 50 new blitzes, which they also didn't know what that meant either. But he would always take pride in the number of plays we ran in a practice and the number of blitzes. One of the things I do remember is the Chiefs were always known as as a defensive team and a running team. And under Gun, that was probably one of the things that was most, uh, uh, he pushed that probably more than anything else. And I remember after every game we wanted, it would always be screaming the same things. We ran it and played defense, run it and played defense. And he had the amazing record that Marty Schottenheimer would have really welcomed. He beat, the two years he was head coach, he beat the Denver Broncos four times. So he beat them every time he played against them. Of course, Gunn would remind you that and say, "Hey, you know, I, I own my, I own Shanahan. I, I, he knows he knows what I can do to him." And, you know, Gunn was 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 in some ways tortured by some of the things, and wanted to be such a good head coach. And he was such a great guy. And the fact that they brought him back years later as defensive coordinator, and he came back, I think is evidence of the fact that he had a fun, he had fun memories of of uh, Kansas City, and he really loved the place.
3: Yeah, you know, he he did, but it was funny because it, it seemed like he never, and, and perhaps it was because of that love, that he never totally got over uh, the the Chiefs firing. You know, he talked about it for years. Uh, and it could come up in the weirdest sort of conversations, you know. Um, he never seemed quite totally able to let it go. Uh, did you have the sort of same feeling that, that it was just really difficult for him to accept
2: yes, yes. what happened? It was difficult for him. It was
3: very difficult for him.
2: Um he had, he had also interviewed, and apparently had had a pretty good interview with the Bears at one time. And then um, I think what Carl's thinking at the time was, with all the players stepping up for him, they were convinced that there was a chance that the team had something left, as I said at the outset of this conversation, that they had something left could make another run at it. But the reality was the team was beginning to show its age. And it was probably over. It was unfair to him at that time. And I think even in the back of Carl's mind, Carl Peterson, who had hired him, I think that was one of the incentives why he brought him back later on. But, yeah, he was embarrassed and hurt. There were a lot of rumors going on at the time. And his emotion sometimes got the best of him. In the second year of his uh, being head coach there, after the first game we had lost to Indianapolis, and it was the first time in about seven or eight openers that we had lost and Gunther, as was his course, was screaming and yelling about, he was so disappointed he was thinking of resigning, and that resigning story got out, and it virtually really began to just, it hurt him terribly. It went all around the city, and we had to go through an awful lot of, an awful lot of, no, it's not true, it was just something he said after a game, and I think sometimes his emotions probably got the best of him, and that's the thing that I think a lot of coaches, you know, head guys or head coaches who have been down the street before, they don't let that happen to them. That was impossible for Gunther. Impossible.
1: Well, Bob, because of those emotions, how different was he for you to deal with than, say, a Schottenheimer or Vermeil? Um You certainly weren't there, I don't think, at four in the morning with him in the office, but did you have to caution him when you go in front of the press? Like, you get control of your anger. I don't... Don't say some things you might want to say. I mean, was he more difficult, different than the others that you had to deal with?
2: Yes. You had to say something about it. Because what would happen is you'd come in, and I came in early, too, not at 4 in the morning. But he'd already read 15 newspapers online and would be curious about something. And I'd say, you know, you got to forget it. Forget it. Who cares? They didn't mean it that way. But he'd read everything. And, you know, the guys are successful today. If they sat down and read every newspaper clipping or every everything that came across, you'd go crazy. But he did. He really couldn't could never ever put it aside. I just say, Don't read it. But he would he would read it and that's why they, the other coaches they let it slide off and go on to the next thing. He really prepared, he wanted to be good, but he was an emotional guy, and that's why his defenses were probably pretty good. He was an emotional guy, very thorough, and he wanted to be that way as a head coach, but I think he'll be His career will be best defined as a defensive coordinator, and I think that should be enough to say he was one of the better defensive coordinators in the league.
4: How how much did the players enjoy playing for Gunn?
2: I think they enjoyed it a lot. I think you'll find players today who played for him. I saw something by Donnie Edwards the other day. I saw something by uh, Derek Johnson. I think the players appreciated the fact that he saw defense as, as important, and they saw themselves as a defensive team, and I think... The Chiefs' success on defense during the heydays of the '90s—it was more or less on defense anyway. So that was sort of what people looked at and, and more or less saw that. And when Gutfeld was hired as head coach at, uh, at the Chiefs, there were a lot of people who were in favor of it because they just thought that would press over to the to the uh, to the whole team. And frankly, it, it did not in some instances. But again, he had a 500 record when he left. But I think emotionally it was one of the problems that, that probably hurt him more than anything else. But the players loved him and respected him. There's no question about that. I remember James Hasty, Derek Johnson, all those players played hard for Gunther. They they really cared about him.
1: Scoop, man, we love and respect you too. But we gotta go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks
1: so much. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it, All right, it. guys.
2: You take care. Thanks, oh, That's um, oh, no you bet, man. Take, take
1: care. care. That was former Chiefs PR director Bob Moore. Up next, the latest member of the Bucks Ring of Honor. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well,
1: we promised you former Tampa Bay Bucks cornerback Rondi Barber, and guess what? He's here with us now. Now, Rondi... Last week was named as the 13th member of the Bucks Ring of Honor and he's going to be honored at halftime for Tampa Bay September 22nd game against the New York Giants and Ronde first of all congratulations and second it's good to have you back with us thanks
5: yeah always good to be on, on with you guys i have a, a very uh, high reverence for uh, this uh, this radio show and blog or whatever <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed being on with you guys, but yes, this is uh, not unexpected to be in the uh, Bucks Ring of Honor. Um, I, mean, I remember last year when they put in Tony Dungy, and uh, the year before when they put in uh, John Gruden and um, Malcolm Glazer, Thinking, oh, eventually the queue is going to run out, and <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been retired long enough. They kinda of let me in eventually. So uh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is this is uh, this is uh, right where I, I expected to be. Well, you are
1: in, and you're in pretty select company, as you just mentioned. Uh, of the twelve previous winners, we've got four in the Hall of Fame, we've got a fifth, John Lynch, who's been a finalist the past six years. Yeah. And you hinted at it here just a couple um, seconds ago, but how how meaningful is this for you to be chosen to the Buck's Ring of Honor?
5: Yeah, this is. Uh, I, I've tried to put it in a lot of different words with people I talked to over the you know past week. I think I, I knew before the draft. It, uh, I talked to, to Brian and Joel and Ed the the, the and <laughs> want to, of the ownership with the Bucs, and they, they let me know before the draft that I was going to be there with the this year. And, um, you know, we knew it was an inevitability. You know, it was going to happen. Obviously, you play 16 years, you got the stats, yada, 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 next in line, um, but it still means the world to me. I mean, I, I live in this community. Uh, these fans here um, have embraced me for, you know, 16 years, now really 22 years plus retirement, uh, that I've been here. And um, it, it, it can't mean anything more to me. Um, I mean, I'm in the yeah, University of Virginia's Ring of Honor. i got my jersey retired there or whatever. But uh, this this is home now. This is where I live. This is where my kids grow up, this is where, my, where me and my wife will always consider our, our, our base. Uh, this is big. to go up in their uh, ring and see our name every single time uh, that we go into the stadium that's that's pretty special
1: well that's your leading question but is it fair to say then that this ranks at the top or near the top of your lifetime achievements
5: yeah yeah I mean because you don't I mean you don't go in thinking that you're ever gonna do this right I mean, you, you, it's at the bottom of the list you know, it's not even on your radar when you show up anywhere and you know this this place is somewhat unique in that we didn't have a ring of honor until not that many years ago, probably seven, eight years ago. Um, and then they started inducting people. So it wasn't even something that you ever thought about. Um, but, you know, unlike national recognition, local recognition, and people appreciating what you did for your team, I think that that speaks more to what you mean to a community than it, than than anything. Um, you know, I I go a lot of places in Tampa and around this area and I can't go anywhere. People people know Ronnie Barber and it's and it's uh kind of fitting that, that, that I'm finally going up with, with, with these you know, this this distinction of guys that are already there. So I I'm I'm more than happy, more than satisfied. I have a great relationship with the organization, with the team still. Um, and I, I can't. I can't wait till September twenty second.
4: Ronnie, Clark mentioned there are twelve members of the Bucks ring, and, and five of them are your contemporaries: Sam, yeah. Brooks, Dungy, Lynch, Gruden. You, of course, will be the sixth. So, why didn't that club win more than one Super Bowl?
5: <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> That's a question that I wish I could answer. Um, I go back to. You know, people people want to answer that question in saying, "Why didn't we win going forward?" Right? So, 2002, uh, we, you know, we, you know, win the NFC South. We have a a bye week. We win at home against uh, San Francisco. We go to Philly. We win, uh, and we go to Super Bowl and win. Our best chance prior, other than that, was probably in 1999. Which was okay. two years, three years before that with New Orleans. I mean, that to me, that was our best football team, and we didn't have the same offensive talent that we had. Tony Dungy was our coach, obviously it wasn't John Gruden, but we went to St. Louis and held the best team in football, best offensive team in football, to eleven points on a on a touchdown that they scored at the end of the game. That should have been our first Super Bowl in my in my in my, in my mind, and in a lot of guys' minds that I played with. Uh, and that should have been the run that we got on. You know, we felt like we were good enough in '99, uh, 2000, 2001, uh 2001 to get there. But it, it, football is crazy. It's a, it's a weird sport, and you know, you lose games that you shouldn't, you win games that you shouldn't. Um, but the most consistent team does, and we we weren't. We were the best team in 2002, and that's why we won that year. And I can't give you an answer why we won that in 2003, 2004, but I I truly believe that our best football was 99 to 2002, and we only won one Super Bowl in there. So if you want to indict indict us from there, that's fine, uh, because we had good teams there. Um, But it, it, it is what it is, man. The NFL is the greatest sport because of that, I think.
3: You know, speaking of the uh, of the Hall of Fame you were a semifinalist in 2018 uh, but not uh, this past year uh, and I realize you've only been eligible uh, for two years so you got a long way yeah. to go but was that did that come as a surprise to you what happened this year number one and number two do you take uh, some solace in the fact that Ty law for example took him three or four times whatever it was uh, for him to yeah. get in there
5: no you know I I understand what it is you know I've, I've had plenty of conversations. You know, and not, you know, in-depth conversations, but I've mean, had plenty of conversations with guys that are in. And I, I, and I, and I distinctly remember a conversation that I had with um, Aeneas Williams at, at the draft. I was at, at the draft a couple of years ago with Aeneas Williams. was there, and he was just sat in hall of fame. And he told me, hey, look, man, I don't know how long it took him. I can't remember the, the number of years that he was on the ballot, but he's like, What your numbers speak for themselves, like, you are what you are. There's nothing you can do about those numbers now. You can't go back and say, "Get two more interceptions and, <laughs> and <laughs> tell them and'd love it like, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but you are what you are. like let those numbers be and let your record be what it is and let the and, and let the- the-, the the record of your career fall as it may and I- i'm I'm, I'm kind of that i't know- I know what I did. I, I, I know the people that respected what I did, and I, I don't. I don't need to push it. You know, the Hall of Fame is great. It's, it's it's awesome. It is the ultimate goal of any player once they've hit a certain degree of success in the NFL. But I have never been a guy that was that was saying when I was playing or post playing, that said I want to be in the Hall of Fame. I love the Hall of Fame. It is great to say you're a Hall of Fame player. Um, but your, your your record should say what it is. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. But if it is good enough, if your numbers speak for themselves, and I think mine do, then you should get there eventually. And I'm I'm okay with that. Speaking of your
3: numbers, uh, you're one of only two uh, defensive backs in the 40-20 club, 40 career interceptions yeah. and 20 sacks, you and Charles uh, Woodson. But something that yep. people may not know, I think you hold the NFL record for most consecutive starts uh, by a defensive back, yeah. 224. So what I'm wondering yeah. is how important do you think, as a guy who played so many games, longevity should be? That's become a big debate since Terrell Davis got in. Yeah,
5: uh, yeah. you know, I Carlson is my my Fame voted, I'm sure you know, obviously. Um, it's one of the things he told me right when I retired. He, uh, like, my record is what it is. So I didn't I, I was drafted in 97. I played in one game in 97. So record truly is 98 until 2012, my last game. I didn't miss a game. There were some starts in there, but there were some, some games in there that I didn't start. And then I started in 98, and there was a game in 99 that I didn't start because I had a pulled hamstring. I don't let Brian Kelly uh, start that game. But in reality, I didn't miss a game from... 1998 until 2012, uh, so 15 years straight. So people ask me, I'm like 15 times 16, whatever. What, what mathematicians could do that number? Um, I didn't miss a game. Uh, I played every single game from 1998 till 2012, um, um, and 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 it, and, it, and, it, and it just is what it is. And and I, there was a good article this this a couple of weeks ago from Ira Kaufman, Scott Reynolds from Peter Report about how many games that I actually played. And it was like, it's not that I didn't play hurt. It's not that I wasn't hurt. I played hurt. I were on many games that I played with a pulled hamstring, with a broken arm. Then one time when I got casted up, there was a uh, broken thumb. Um, and it's just, I, had a, I was different in that regard. There was many guys that I played with that wouldn't have done that. Um, but football meant more to me uh, than a lot of people. And um, it's something that I take a lot of pride in. Um, there's a lot of guys that I played with, a lot of coaches that I was with, and a lot of training staff guys that I was with. It still holds me in, in high regard because of that. So, uh, look, I don't want to. I don't. Wanna, I, don't I, I can pump my own horn forever, um, <laughs> but I know what I did, and I and I and I like what I did as a football player. But at the end of the day, I need everybody else to realize that to get into the Hall, the Football Hall of Fame. Um, um. But I. But I am what I am. I. It, it, if you want to know what I. What I am, just go look at the record. It's there, uh, and uh, I, I, I'm more than happy to be in the Bucks Ring of Honor. Uh, I'm more than happy to be a finalist, I've a semi finalist for the past two years. Uh, I know how difficult that is. I've seen a lot of guys that have a lot of credit to get there that aren't there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an honor, and to be in a conversation as good as anything I can imagine.
1: Rondé, thanks so much for the time. We're out of time, as a matter of fact, but congratulations on making thanks, the Ring everybody. of Honor, and good Appreciate luck
5: with the Hall. Cheers, brother. Appreciate you guys having me out. Thank you. Thanks, you
1: Thank got You got it. That was Rondé Barber, the newest member of the Bucks Ring of Honor. Up next, it's two-minute drill. You're to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, we just about reached intermission, except for one piece of unfinished business.
4: That's the two-minute warning.
1: Yes, sir, it's the two-minute drill, and Ronnie, you've got it this week, so let's get started.
3: Nick Bosa is only the seventh defensive end in history taken with a second overall pick. Here's the other six. Julius Peppers, Neil
4: Smith, Mike Bell, Art Still, Chris Long, and Sherman White. Who's your pick? I was there when three of them were drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs, so I am the expert. I'll take Art Still.
1: Not me. I'm taking Sherman because he comes from Mississippi, buddy. <laughs>
4: Oh god. Tom
3: Brady makes 15 million this year, but his salary cap hit is 27 million, fourth highest in the NFL. What was that about team friendly
4: deals again? My money says the Patriots won't cut him and won't take that hat cap hit in 2019
1: about. No more mention of Tom Brady again. <laughs> hey, Ron, he's the best planet, player on the planet. He's not paid as the best player. That's
3: what this is all about. So how to get that cap hit, boys? Uh, Robert Kraft just beat the Florida legal system on a prostitution charge. Will he beat Roger Goodell's legal system, too?
4: Ron, just because a horse crosses the finish line first doesn't mean he always wins the race.
1: <laughs> Ron, nobody beats Goodell. That's why we say Roger over and out.
3: <laughs> John Dorsey says Browns fans are more passionate than Packer fans. What say
4: you? Depends how you define passionate. Passionate about winning or passionate about losing?
1: I say John Dorsey needs a sobriety check.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Cheesehead, dog pound,
4: or black hole? <laughs> the dog pound by the width of a craft single.
3: Cheesehead, because I like passionate fans. <laughs> Former Eagle Donovan McNabb says it's unfair to criticize his criticism of the Eagles because he's on radio, and he does he have a point?
4: Tell that to Mike Francesa.
3: <laughs> yes, he does. Philadelphia,
1: Ron, where no one's happy, unless they're miserable.
3: <laughs> New Jet Le'Veon Bell is yet to land, but he says pra- he'll practice when it's time. May is not that time. Is
4: August? Try September.
1: Uh, yes, it is August, because he knows for whom the bell toils.
3: <laughs> Super Bowl referee John Perry says Stephen Gilmore's breakup of an end zone pass to Brandon Cook in the Super Bowl would be pass interference
4: today. Reason to worry? If you're the Patriots, yes.
3: <laughs> Not
1: for New England, no. Scoreboard, baby! That's the end of that. That's the internet. end of our first hour of Don't Go Away. We have Leroy Butler, Mark no Keith Millard, and the role of longevity in Hall of Fame candidates. We've got all that to get to, so stay where you are. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network
0: Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And
1: online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where in the next 60 minutes we'll hear from ESPN.com's Rich Samini on his interview with Mark Gastineau find out why the Vikings, Keith Millard, belongs in a Hall of Fame conversation and discuss the value of longevity in the candidacies of Hall of Fame hopefuls. But first, at first we want to acknowledge and congratulate one of our favorite guests and one of the best Green Bay Packers ever, a genuine Hall of Fame hopeful, and another friend of the show, Green Bay Safety, Lavoy Butler. He got married last weekend, but not only did he get married, did you see where he had his wedding photo taken, guys? This is it Lambo? He made another Lambo leap, this time with his bride on.
3: Now that was a leap of faith,
4: especially for the new bride. <laughs>
1: You're right about that. Hey, Goose, did you see the photo? It was actually pretty cool.
4: Yeah, it was cool. The only thing missing was a football and about 120 beer cans. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: Todd Rundgren banging on the drum all day. Um, so let me ask you guys. Have you seen any photos by, let's say other players? No well, even even guys on the Hall of Fame shortlist, like LaVarie Butler is, I mean he was a semifinalist. They didn't come close to that. I mean, they're kind of you know, cute, but you go, that's pretty clever,
4: Ron? Clever? Can't say that I have.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> and, you know you see. You see occasional pictures of weddings at home plate in a baseball stadium. Yeah, right. But those have been mostly by fans. You know, I'm not sure I've ever seen a stage photo like that of uh, the Butler pull-off.
1: She said, "When he goes, hey, we're doing a Lambo leap afterwards."
3: Huh? <laughs> what? <don't we? laughs> you know what they should do? They should have divorce pictures, like in hockey games. Boom! <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pow!
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs>
3: That's
1: right. Well, listen. Let's just say. Let's just say you did. You did find something. you thought was pretty interesting. Um, give me the best photo opportunity for any player. You can make it up. Any player, maybe Hall of Famer, on his wedding day. Thing <laughs> that you would come up with an idea. Goose, what
4: would you say? I would say Terrell Davis giving a mile high salute to his wedding party.
3: Whoa. Well, nice. Ron? I, got
4: a, I got a better one than that. Johnny Unitas on his
3: wedding day, seating in the first pew while Earl Morrill takes the vows for him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ow. Anyway, Ow. Well, wow. Well,
1: congratulations again, Leroy. Now, strike up time run to Robert. Robert you please. Thanks. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Little known fact, guys, did you know that on this day, Wednesday... May 15th, and in 1940, May 15th, McDonald's opens its first restaurant. Yeah, true story, McDonald's. It happened in San Bernardino, California. Now, it wasn't owned by Ray Kroc then. It was owned by the McDonald Brothers. Hmm, guess why They wonder what they called the McDonald's. It was called McDonald's Barbecue, and it featured 25 menu items, mostly. Uh, Ron, surprising. Barbecue. barbecue. <laughs> I guess that's what, I guess that's why they called it barbecue. <laughs> Hence the so name. They really focused mostly, <laughs> mostly on hamburgers. They changed the name to McDonald's in nineteen they took on Ray Kroc, who sold milkshake machines. I think he had eight of them in their McDonald's, and and he fell in love with McDonald's formula, suggested the company become franchised along the way, and the rest, as they say, is history. Ron, I remember when I went for first McDonald's, went first there uh, in the late 50s. When did you first visit uh, a McDonald's? When did you first go there?
3: Well, i got to tell you honestly, not until I was in college. There were none in my really? hood. Uh, there was none in my hood. <laughs> that uh, might have been the late 50s, right? <laughs> the, the, the only guys I knew going to McDonald's uh, when I was coming, coming up with guys who are going to rob them. I'll have a Big Mac, a Happy Meal, and whatever's in the till. That's to go. Goose, <laughs> when did you first
1: go to McDonald's? You weren't going there to rob it, were you?
4: <laughs> no, I was probably in the in the later mid to late 60s. I was in high school and could learn how to drive. There weren't any McDonald's within walking. distance of my home. But back then, I probably spent as much time at fast food chains called Burger Chef and Red Barn yeah. than I did at McDonald's.
1: Jeff, oh. well, I was... You know what, guys? I was way ahead of you. Of course, I, I'm always way ahead of you. Of course you were. Of course. <laughs> but my first experience, I remember, well, 1958, Norfolk, Virginia. My dad was stationed in Norfolk, and I remember that's when when you ordered a burger, they always put mustard, ketchup, onions, and pickles Ugh, up. I, I, everything. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I didn't want the mustard, the onions, or the pickles. I could take the ketchup. Um, so I'd always say, could I have it plain, please? And my brother and sister go, you got to be kidding me, because it meant that you'd wait like 10 to 15 minutes to be served. And I don't know, I guess that's when my brother and first sister first started to sort of move away and disassociate themselves from me. Maybe it was earlier, maybe it was when I was born, I don't know. But one other thing about McDonald's, did you know, and just look this up, that it ranks second globally among fast food restaurants in terms of stores, a number of uh, outlet franchises, whatever. It's second to Subway. Now, I, I would have thought it was first, to be honest with you. I mean, you go overseas, you know, I don't see that many Subway's. But I say a lot of McDonald's. And Starbucks is third. Again, I would have thought Starbucks would have beaten the subway. So wow. I guess I'll ask you this, Goose. If there's one item from McDonald's, from the menu McDonald's, that would make your Culinary Hall of Fame, since you're a Hall of Fame voter, <laughs> like this segue, Ron, you're a Hall of Fame <laughs> voter, your Culinary Hall of Excellent. Fame, what's that one item? What would it be?
4: The McRib sandwich—it's not on the menu often, and when it is, they go fast.
3: Wow, Ron, what's yours? That got to be like a Texas thing. I don't think you've had the McRib sandwich up my way, but look—it's got to be the fries. I mean, the fries oh. are like that's the crack, so that's the crack of potatoes. I mean, <laughs> nobody right. can stop eating them. You can't beat the crispy chicken sandwich. However, I will tell you that, but but uh. all the mayo. But the fries, I mean... <laughs> I've got the fries, too. I'm going for the
1: fries. Of course, for Ron, that's before I saw the fat con. Ugh, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. All you want to know about McDonald's, happy birthday, Ronald McDonald. And please, crack of please, potatoes. hold them. <laughs> yeah, hold the mustard, onions, and pickles. That means it's time for someone to make a Hall of Fame case for a deserving player. And that someone is our Ron Borges, who's going to hold, I think, the mustard, onions, and pickles. And that deserving <laughs> player? It's another than former Vikings defensive tackle Keith Millard whom Ron wrote about this week on our website talkofamenetwork.com. and Ron you care to tell our listeners what is so appealing about Keith Millard please say yes because if you say no we got a lot to fill here
3: (laughs) we we got a big hole Uh, yeah look Keith Millard is not a name you might remember unless you ever faced him or you were watching when he dominated interior line play in the NFL for most of the second half of the 1980s Uh, for six years he was one of the most dominating defensive tackles in football a guy who played in a friend and created enough havoc to be named 1989 NFL Defensive Player of the Year as a defensive tackle. Then he blew out his knee and a guy who seemed to be on a Hall of Fame track went off the rails. Billard was a shooting star, seemingly unstoppable one man, and then flamed out. His body suddenly altered in a way that could not be repaired. Still, he was so good between 1984 and 1990 that he was twice first-team All-Pro, twice second-team All-Pro uh, after coming to the Vikings, uh, before that, he went to the USFL, played one season, finished second in sacks in 1984, uh, and then the league folded. He did not. He had double-digit sacks of defensive tackle four times, 12 in the USFL in '84, then 11 the next year with the Vikings, 10.5 in 1986, and a then-record 18 in 1989. Those 18 sacks were a record for a defensive tackle that stood for 29 years, finally being broken last season by the Rams' Aaron Donald. If a record stands for 29 years, it says something about the kind of dominance you once had, and Keefe Lard is no exception. At that point, he had played six years of professional football and already had 63 sacks, an average of better than 10 per season. He seemed a surefire Hall of Famer. Then came September thirtieth, 1990, the day he blew out his right knee trying to sack Vinny Testaverde, damaging him so severely he could not play for nearly two years. Nothing would be the same after that. Millard would argue he never played again, at least not like Keith Millard. Forced to undergo reconstructive knee surgery at a time when such an operation was far more daunting than it is today, he did not start another game until 1993 in what would be his final season. Near the end of his career, he said, I could not do what I did before, not even close. I knew I was done. Known for his raging personality that was a product of a dysfunctional family, he used to work himself into a rage before kickoffs. All week he would manufacture a false hatred for his opponents that spilled over in ways that seemed to overtake him, body and soul. He played with fury, but also with an emphasis on technique and unusual quickness and agility for a big man. The latter was a product of having been a converted tight end in a game he didn't begin playing until he was a junior in high school. Well, I don't know how he started, but he finished with 58 NFL sacks and another 12 in the, in the USFL. Those 58 sacks tie him with Cortez Kennedy, the Seattle Seahawks' Hall of Fame defensive tackle. Here's the difference. It took Cortez Kennedy 167 games to get those sacks. It took Millard just 93. Does Keith Millard belong in the Hall of Fame? That's open to debate, and that's not the point. His candidacy, like too many other all-decade choices, has never been debated. His play earned him at least that.
4: Ron, should the U.S. Phil stats count on a player's historical record? I mean, guys like Herschel Walker, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, and Millard really seem to have been shortchanged.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, I think they should uh – in particular because what's the name of the uh, of the building? The Pro Football Hall of Fame. Not the National Football League Hall of Fame. It's the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the last time I looked those guys were getting paid too uh, and, and putting up big numbers uh, Now some people argue well the competition wasn't as good Well the guys who put up big numbers in the USFL for the most part came in the NFL and did the same thing like Herschel Walker as you mentioned like Keith Millard uh, uh, I, I really think they sh- they should look they, they also should look at Canada uh, yeah, in in my opinion. Now, you're still going to put your weight, for the most part, behind what they do in the NFL, but uh, I think those are legitimate f- professional leagues, uh, and they should be looked at. All right.
1: Simple question, Ron. Klecko or Millard?
3: Well, that's interesting, and the people in, in New York, of course, would yell and scream and, and, and holler that uh, it should be uh, Joe Klecko first, but the truth of the matter is, Keith Millard had three times as many sacks as Joe Klecko, and Joe Klecko played part of his career defensive end where you're supposed to sack the quarterback. Uh, Look, Joe Klecko was a very versatile player, talented guy, was himself, I believe in 1981, uh, NFL Defensive Player of the Year. It deserves uh, consideration, no question. But if we get a play next Saturday and Gino Marchetti's not available... (laughs) Or 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 uh, Alex Garris is not available. I'd be happy with Keith Millard, and I would take him over Joe Klecko. I just think he was better at his position. Klecko was really good at a lot of different positions, but he was not as dominating as Keith
4: Millard. Does it hurt him that he played alongside Chris Dolman, who is in the Hall?
3: Yeah, I think it. I I, I think so. I think you you, you take that. Uh, you combine that uh, with a the brief window of his career, the six years that he, that he played, you know, I mean, he lost, uh, two seasons right when he was at the peak of his, uh, of his abilities. And, and I think, uh, when you think of that Minnesota defense, now Dolman is the guy you think of because he had a longer career and a more productive career and they've forgotten what Millard was, but a lot of what Dolman did, uh, was in part due to the fact that Keith Millard was, was next to
1: him. All right. Hey Ron, quick question. Um, does the Terrell Davis situation change the conversation about Millard now, especially with the senior committee?
3: I think it changes the conversation with some guys. My fear for him is that it's too long ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think they're going to sort of grandfire at backward uh, very often. Uh, but he should be certainly looked at. And, that, and that's what Terrell Davis, he opened the door for a lot of players like Keith Millard. Thanks, Ronnie.
1: Appreciate it. That was good. Up next, we're going to be talking about another pass rusher. Oh, this guy's a defensive end. That would be Mark Gastineau. That's coming up right after this.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, whenever we mention Joe Klecko in the Pro Football Hall of Fame,
1: two things happen. First, we get a lot of people wondering why Joe Klecko's not in already. And second, we get a lot of other people asking, hey... What about Mark Gastineau? Well, our next guest can tell you everything about Mark Gastineau because ESPN.com's Rich Semini wrote a poignant and compelling story a couple weeks ago about Mark Gastineau and the life he leads now and how he got there. And, and Rich, it's not a pretty picture, is it? Uh,
6: well, no. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And, uh, no, I mean, Mark is, uh, was diagnosed in October with stage 3 colon cancer. And uh, really, that was just the latest blow, because about a year and a half before that, he was told that he's suffering from... Uh, early dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, which he certainly believes is from football. Uh, so, yeah, it's, all these medical health situations are piling up on Mark. Spoke to him for a while, but he's, he's pretty positive. He, he's done with his chemo for his colon cancer. He's going through radiation right now. He's hopeful. But as he said, they're about halftime uh, of that battle right now.
1: Yeah, I loved reading the story you wrote because the portrait you paint of him is so different from the public perception of Mark Asno. At least how we remember him. Um, and I think we remember him as a guy making a lot of money. I think it was like eight hundred thousand a year or so. Um, the fur length, a full length fur coats, um, seeking the spotlight, always in the spotlight, doing the sack dances over quarterbacks, and honestly, first on the arm of a statues Blonde, I remember that pretty well, too, Was with the Bridget- yeah, yeah. But um, today, you know, today he's a man of faith uh, on the verge of losing his New Jersey home because of the medical bills, the stacks of medical bills, and, and is fighting the battle of his, and really for his, life. It's, it's quite a contrast, isn't it?
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you summarized it very, you know, very well, so I couldn't, <laughs> yeah, you captured it well. He's uh, he's one, maybe one of the most complicated athletes I've ever covered because, you know, he was a bigger-than-life guy with the mink coats and the uh, dating Brigitte Nielsen and eventually marrying her and just partying at the trendiest clubs in Manhattan. And there's also a, a different side of him. You know, he wasn't always well-liked by his teammates because they thought he was a, a showboat. And he did get in some fights in those trendy clubs. He had a famous Studio 54 uh, brawl, I think it was in 1983 or 1984, that involved a couple of other teammates, which made huge headlines in New York. Uh, You know, he admitted later in life after playing that he was an abuser of steroids throughout his career. He's had domestic violence charges against him from his first wife. You know, he lost all of his assets in a divorce hearing to his first wife. So he's had a really um, turbulent, I think is the word, life. And I think he's really humbled now because of what he's going through. And as Marty Lyons said, his teammate, you know, remember the New York Stock Exchange, Marty said, you know, maybe Mark didn't say thank you to as many people as he should have during his career. He goes, but I think now he's grateful and humble and, and realizing that before it's not too late, hopefully.
4: So, Rich, what struck you most about the Mark Gastineau of 2019? Was it the humility?
6: Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I've seen Mark over the, occasionally, rarely, when I say occasionally, I'd say every few years, I'd see him at a event, uh, maybe a jet-related event, and he always plays to the crowd, so that old Mark is not gone yet, And I think you saw in the story, he's still a ham. I mean, he likes the spotlight. I mean, when he finished his uh, last chemo session, he came out in the waiting room, and they have a little bell that all the patients uh, get to ring uh, when they finish their last chemo session in the cancer center, by the way, which is uh, in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he didn't just ring the bell. I mean, he he was like... Going crazy and dancing and ringing the bell and he wouldn't stop and he turned it into a big event, much like one of his sack dances. And so that part of Mark is still there, but in my, and there's the other part that is definitely more humble. I mean, he was crying in our phone conversation, uh, just about, you know, the way his life has turned and he was also praying. During the phone conversation, he was asking God to to actually. At one point, he was asking the Lord to bless me to write a good story so it would as touch as many people as as I could with the story because he wants people. He wants to raise awareness for colon cancer prevention. So it, it was a really meandering conversation I had with him. In one minute, he was the old Mark talking about all his sacks, and then the next second. He was crying and praying, and it was really a a pretty crazy conversation.
4: You know, his former teammate on the sack exchange, Marty Lyons, said that Mark realizes he's closer to the end now than the beginning. Do you think that helped explain the transformation?
6: I do. I do. I mean, these guys are in their early 60s now. And so, uh, you know, Marty Lyons has had his own health battles. He had a stroke a couple of years ago. You know, thankfully, he's doing okay now. Uh, Abdul Salam, who was the kind of the unsung member of that uh, SAC exchange, has been dealing with a severe uh, diabetic situation. You know, he's in a wheelchair. And, uh, and Gil has had a lot of injuries, uh, surgeries. I think he just had neck surgery not too long ago, just you know, post-football stuff. And so Mark does seem humble. And I think also his, uh, his religious, I mean, he's really spiritual right now. He drives about 90 minutes a couple of times a week, you know, from his home in Jersey to the Times Square Church in Matt- in the center of Manhattan, where he's a part of the choir, believe it or not uh he said he had a funny line. He said, "My wife and I are at the back row of the choir and he goes, "I thought it was because we were the tallest ones. He goes I, then I realized they put the worst singers in the back so uh-huh. uh, so, so he but he, you know he's still got a sense of humor self deprecating and but definitely I think uh from a spiritual standpoint, that also has led to this transformation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, the league stepping in again to ruin the fun. But uh, uh, in, in your piece, you said, uh, quote, uh, some might say he redefined the position, to which Gasno says, I don't think a lot of people think that. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Yeah. What, was, what was your reaction, A, when he said that, and B, what do you think? Oh, you guys would know better than me
6: just from a historical perspective. I I just know. You know, that he, he he was a speed rusher. He was an edge rusher, I think, before we were calling it an edge rusher. And, you know, constantly, I think he was a five-time Pro Bowler, maybe a three-time All-Pro. And, I mean, he was fast. I mean, he came out of, I mean, the Jets were just, who is this guy? You know, they saw him at the Senior Bowl. And it's like their coaching staff was coaching that year in Mobile, and they're like, who is this guy from East Central where? And he was just a really, really fast guy who was known as kind of a wild, thoroughbred. And I think Walt Michaels told some of the people in the draft room, don't worry, I, I could break him in and I'll be able to coach him. And so he was kind of known as a wild man too. And he continued playing that way, but it sacked the quarterback. And that was uh, a big thing. It became what he was known for. And I don't think... I think he's trying to be humble when he said, I don't think I re- redefined the position. I think maybe if you asked him that question in 1984, 85, he definitely would have said yes. But now I think everything he's been through, I think his, his perspective has changed.
1: Hey, Rich, I wanted to ask you, when um, you said that you know, there's some friction between him and uh, some of his teammates. Are they rallying around him now? Are those teammates rallying around him now because of the travails he's going through?
6: Yeah, they have, and that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, there was, there was no doubt there was some friction when he was playing, and uh, I remember, and this was just when I was starting to cover the Jets, I caught the tail end of Mark's career, and so I, I didn't have a great appreciation for it at the time, but I remember once on a road trip, I saw him taking out a few of the ball boys. Um, to dinner, and I, I said to one of the other writers, I go, that's really cool. Mark's, you know, taking out the ball boys. <laughs> and, and the writer, maybe was a little critical, said that's because none of the other players wanted to go out with him. So, <laughs> uh, so, so there was some friction at the time, but they definitely rallied around him. When I talked to Marty Lyons for the story, he said he called Mark when he heard the news, and he offered, you know, a fundraiser. And, and Marty's really good that way. He's very, you know, He's very charitable. He has his own foundation. Uh, Mark told me the Jets have been really good at helping him. Uh, Some some of the longer member, you know, longest tenured members of the organization have reached out to him, and he mentioned a couple of teammates as well. And the reaction I got on Twitter, I think the fans. You know, he, he, man, there's still so many Mark Gaston fans among the older fans. It's amazing. And I said in the story, I said, well, Namath, of course, is the most popular jet ever. And yeah, I don't know if that'll ever change, but uh, Mark might be second, you know, just because of the, the 99 and the, the, you know, the aura and the the sacking of the quarterback and just the larger-than-life personality and the controversies. He, he might be the second most popular dead of all time. And it, just the, the reaction on Twitter was uh, kind of took me aback a little bit because he's still, he's still a big guy. It's still a big name in New York.
1: Yeah, it is a big name. And, uh, Rich, thanks so much for talking about it. Appreciate the time. And thanks for the story. I, I think it was a great, great piece of journalism.
6: Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. Thanks, guys.
1: You got it. That was ESPN.com's Rich Tamini. If you missed the story, go to his ESPN blog on the Jets, and you're going to find it. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well,
1: last Sunday, of course, was
0: Mother's Day and provoked the Hall of Fame to send out something,
1: you know, I had never seen before. Um, and that's that there was once a National Women's Football League from 1972... Through 1976, and that the mother of former NFL linebacker Marcus Patton actually played in the league for a team called the Los Angeles Dandelions. In fact, Marcus said, Seeing my mom play really made me want to play in the NFL. And that's a direct quote. So, Ron, (laughs) I want to ask you here how many guys do you think can say that today? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I would say one, him. <laughs> yeah, we just talked to him. <laughs> hey, Coach, you are a history expert.
1: Did you know there was ever a National Women's Football League, honestly?
4: No, no, but I knew there was a female team uh, called the Dallas Diamonds here. And I'm not sure what league they played in, but they did win four titles. Whoa. So well, I, Dallas, I knew there was some women's is. football around. Yeah, I didn't know about the league, though
1: say if the NFL tried to start one now, um, you know, maybe subsidizing that league like the NBA does with the WNBA, honestly, how much interest do you think there'd be? Would people go well, through
4: that? I think there'd be zero interest from the owners, much less the fans. If the owners aren't invested, this, the fans aren't going to be either. If it's not going to make money, the NFL owners have no interest in bankrolling it. The NFL pulled the plug, the financial plug, on the World League, which actually was supplying them players. A women's league would not be supplying players to the NFL. So if the owners can't benefit, they're not going to want to be involved.
1: Ron, those how those, about if those women's players were football fabulous females?
3: Whoa, and now we're talking about a whole different encyclopedias, as uh, <laughs> Coach Parcells would say. Uh, you know, once there, you know, there was a league called the National Women's Football Alliance that went from 2001 to 2009. Uh, in fact, the Massachusetts Mutiny played for the title in 2002 and uh, unfortunately got whipped by uh, Goose's Detroit Danger in that uh, big contest. <laughs> uh, uh, but i got to tell you, that league... Had my all-time favorite football team name. And what was it? What was it? <laughs> the yeah. Ventura Black Widows. Do you know what black widows do, Clark? They mate, yeah. and then they kill their mate. I've had some <laughs> friends who were married to people like that. <laughs> <laughs> the black Ventura Black Widows. Think about it. It's
1: like somebody's got inside information on that, Ron. Just think
3: of the T-shirts. Wow, that'd be great.
1: Well, even if they did try to start a league like this, I'm not so sure, forget the Black Widow, the L.A. Dandelions is going to make it either. Uh, I don't know about that, not today. Um, Anyway, let's move on um, to a league that, well, has and and made it, and and that would be... The National Football League. We've been around for a long time. Now, I want to talk to you guys about longevity. We've talked about it before in this show. but particularly me too. I love and, it. Yeah, <laughs> I do too.
3: I, I was to 30. I didn't care. But now I'm looking for a lot of longevity. In
1: We've all got it right now. Let's keep it. Um, but I want to talk about longevity as it pertains to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, oh. because when we were talking to Rodney Barber earlier, that was a subject of conversation. and I do find it intriguing. It's a question that's always been before us, but seems to me and it's now more than ever, simply because of the Terrell Davis induction. So um, let's get this out in the open and just hear what you have to say right now about uh, the value of longevity to a Hall of Fame candidacy, and and if it is or should be a factor in reaching Canton. So, Goose, I'll start with you. A basic question. Where do you stand on longevity and its role in a Hall of Fame candidacy?
4: I think sustained excellence is what you want in a candidate. Uh, uh, Tony Gonzalez going to 14 Pro Bowls. A Walter Payton named All-Decade Teams for both 1970s and 80s. A Peyton Manning winning five MVP awards. You want to look at a player's resume and see more than two, three, or four years of excellence. You'd have to build another wing Canton to house all the bust players who had two or three great seasons. It's the players with eight, nine, and ten great seasons that separate themselves and belong in Canton.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Look. Uh to me, Gail Sayers was the—he was the cutoff line. Seven right. seasons, five Hall of Fame seasons. Uh, and once you get down to four total seasons and two, perhaps arguably, Hall of Fame seasons, which I, I would say was Terrell Davis's resume. Uh, well, then you can start putting a lot of people in there who are like Haley's Comet—you know, they they shot by for a minute, bright as hell, and then they disappeared. But as Tony <coughs> Dungy has said, uh, and you guys have both heard him say it many times. Uh, Big part of ability is availability. If you aren't available for too long, then you aren't a Hall of Famer. Uh, if that's not the case, then Priest Holmes is a Hall of Famer, and Bert Jones is a Hall of Famer, and uh, you know uh, the three of us might have had a Hall of Fame moment or two. You know, if you look hard enough. I mean, it <laughs> just most careers, to me, regardless of length, uh, I'd say five Hall of Fame seasons and uh, seven total seasons. That should be yep. the, the Mendoza line, or oh, In this case, it would be the Gale Sayers line.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ron, because it seems to me that there are really two ways of looking at this. It, it can skew a candidacy, as will be the case, for instance, of a Frank Gore, um, or was the case of Jerome Bettis. I mean, guys that aren't necessarily dominant players, they're really good players, but they stick around long enough to pile up big numbers. I mean, which... What score now, like the fourth leading rusher of all time? Um, Or it could go in the other direction. It could be a deterrent because a player didn't last long enough to give his career a chance to breathe. And when I say that, I mean go up and down and up and down. You know, you just get three great seasons, you're gone. Oh, whoa, you know, Hall of Fame. No, I'm just sort of wondering where you stand on that, Ron.
3: Well, I think both those things are are, are true, but uh, uh, I I would say this about long-term production. Uh, Of the kind you just talked about with Gore and Bettis. Uh, When you have that kind of. Extended period of playing time. It's because you were superior for a long time. Otherwise, they don't keep you around. They're not going to pay you to gain, you know, 395 yards, of, you know, for seven seasons at the end. And I understand what Frank Gore is not who you first think of among his peers when you're saying who are the great runners of his era. But consider this: uh, only nine players in NFL history have rushed for a thousand yards or more in a season eight times. I mean, eight players, rather. Seven of them are in the Hall of Fame. Gore is the the eighth. Longevity counts.
4: You know, many years ago when I was a newcomer on the committee, one of the voters pulled me aside and told me his guideline. Was this candidate one of the two or three best at his position during his era? And that's the sticky point with Gore's candidacy. Was he ever one of the two or three best at his position during those 14 seasons? He finished in the top five in rushing just once in his career. His peers were LaDainian Tomlinson, Adrian Peterson, Sean Alexander, LaShawn McCoy, Chris Johnson, all players who won rushing titles. Then there's Jamal Charles, Steven Jackson, Clinton Portis, Marshawn Lynch. When you figure out where Gore fits in that cluster, you'll have a better handle on his Hall of Fame chances.
1: Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, he does have that longevity that we're talking about here, and and I want to go back to sort of what I mentioned earlier. I don't think people understand, uh, you know, generally, but I, but I, I hope they do. There, there is no way, guys, and you know it because we talk about it all the time. There's no way of overstating the importance of the Terrell Davis situation and 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 how it changed all Hall of Fame candidacies and, and how they're viewed now. Don't you agree? I mean, it, to me, Goose, it, it was a it was a defining moment when when he got in on such few years that all of a sudden, it opened the door for a lot of guys we never would have considered.
4: Yeah, I believe it lowered the bar. Davis had three Hall of Fame caliber seasons. Now, anyone who's had three great seasons can clamor for Hall of Fame consideration. Davis is their precedent, and it's a dangerous one for voters. I still want to see the guys with eight, nine, and ten Pro Bowls and first-team all decade to claim get those busts. In my eyes, it's about continued and consistent greatness. And like Ron said, you know, Priest-Holmes, there, there's a lot of players that had three great seasons that now, based on Terrell Davis, deserve to have their, their cases discussed.
3: Yeah, I can remember, uh, um, and uh, for the purposes of full disclosure, I did not vote for uh, Terrell Davis um, for just the reasons we're talking about. And if you guys remember, that uh, day the discussion was, was going on, um, one of the voters uh, rattled off the three best years of Clinton Portis's career, and they were within a, a hundred and some odd yards of yeah. what Darrell Davis did in his three best seasons. Did you ever, for one minute, sit in a press box thing and look down on the field and say, hmm, "Clinton Portis, future Hall of Famer"?
1: Yeah. Well, wow. I, I think what swung that conversation, that argument, as you guys know, was the postseason record when they brought that forward and said, you know, when, when games mattered, when big players have to develop, and they have to uh, demonstrate big games and, and uh, come through in big games. He did it in a big way, and I, and I thought that was sort of the compelling argument that swung that vote in his favor.
3: Well, he did, but, you know, the the, 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 the underside of that, uh, the dark shadow of that, is had he played uh, a normally length career, he very likely would have been in quite a number more uh, playoff games without John Elway, for example, and those numbers would have come down. So the breadth of his career, the shortness of his career rather, actually helped him in, in that little yep. area. That's a pretty yep. small sample size. Yeah, no, that's right. That, that, I mean, he was so great I in those games. It, don't get me wrong, but you know, a lot of guys were great in games if they don't play too many. Um,
4: yeah, guy, so guys that have long enough? careers have the guys that have long careers have natural downsides they, they kind of slide right. to the finish line He never had that downside. we're, we're yeah, asked to I, judge him on three great seasons without ever seeing the back end of the career well,
1: and I think a good example of that is Eli Manning frankly after the 2011 season. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not so sure, because it hasn't been much of anything except mediocrity since then. Um, and I guess, Rhonda, I'll go back to your point earlier about the uh, Mendoza line or the Gale Sayers line. When is enough enough? I mean, we have Tony Baselli on the cusp of getting to Canton, and he played in 91 games. We have Rob Gronkowski, who some people say should be first ballot choice. Sorry, but they say that. Um, He hasn't played a complete season since, what, 2011? So where do you draw the line? And, Ron, I think you said you draw it at, what, five?
3: Five uh, Five Hall of Fame seasons and seven seven seasons seasons of sort of surviving the game. Because I think if you would, I would argue if you look at – Probably half or more than half of the Hall of Famers in the Hall of Fame, they probably had five or six really great seasons. You know, if you're going to play 10, 11, 12 years, you you know, you're not going to be able to sustain that uh, forever. It's how bright did they burn when they were at their best and how well did they play uh, after that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the only caveat I would say is for the uh, very early years, uh, say from the 60s, 50s, 40s back then. Yeah, you know, guys were getting out in five or six years to get a paying job. Right. Completely different. No no one's been doing that for a long time. If you're getting out, it's because somehow you couldn't survive. And, and I, I think that we have to factor that in, in my opinion. How about you, Goose?
1: <laughs> well, I know we had NFL historian John Turney on here last week talking about it, but, but I think he's right when he says this is the highlight generation. and And I don't think... Those fans are as much consumed by career numbers of longevity with candidates as much as they are about highlight reels and sports center headlines. They remember the guy who made the one-handed catch, Uh, not the running back who scored 18 times and led his team to a Super Bowl, a guy who played 15 seasons. So I I think there's a a, a sort of shift in how we perceive some of these players, Ron, especially going
2: forward.
3: Yeah, to a degree, although I think maybe we're short. Uh, short-selling uh, the younger fan. Uh, but, I, but I get your t- attorney's point. You're right. I mean, highlights. Uh, one of the things that hurts the older players is they don't have all these highlight reels to show them in the first place, you know. I mean, guys have been, there were guys making one-handed catches in the 1960s, too, without all the sticky gloves. Uh, yes, you know, right. but you just don't see them. So- R.C. Owens, baby. Exactly. You know, you just don't see them. So uh, I-, I think uh, – Uh, How you compare players from different eras uh, is is a big part of all this. Uh, But in the end, to me, uh, three great seasons is not a Hall of Fame career. It just isn't.
1: Goose got about thirty seconds. What do you think happens when old school guys like us leave the board and younger members sign on? Is log longevity less of an issue ten years from now than it is today?
4: Well, it'll no longer be our problem. You know, we've served our term, done the best we could to right some wrongs. Just as the McDonough's, Cooper Cooperalls, and Larry Felsers passed on their problems to us, we'll pass on our problems to others, and it'll be theirs <laughs> to handle. All
1: right. Well, speaking of longevity, guys, we've run out of it for now, just for this segment. So we're going to break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, last Sunday, of course,
0: was Mother's Day and it provoked the Hall of Fame to send out something,
1: you know, I had never seen before. Um, and that's that there was once a National Women's Football League from 1972 through 1976, and that the mother of former NFL linebacker Marcus Patton actually, played in the league for a team called the Los Angeles Dandelions. In fact, Marcus said, See my mom play really made me want to play in the NFL. And that's a direct quote. So, Ron, I want to ask you here how many guys do you think can say that today? I would say one, him. <laughs> yeah, we just talked to him. <laughs> hey, Coach, you are a history expert. Did you know there was ever a National Women's Football League, honestly?
4: No, no, but I knew there was a female team uh, called the Dallas Diamonds here. And I'm not sure what league they played in, but they did win four titles. Whoa, So I, Dallas, I knew there was some women's is. football around. Yeah, I didn't know about the league, though
1: say if the NFL tried to start one now, um, you know, maybe subsidizing that league like the NBA does with the WNBA, honestly, how much interest do you think there'd be? Would people go well, through
4: that? I think there'd be zero interest from the owners, much less the fans. If the owners aren't invested, this, the fans aren't going to be either. If it's not going to make money, the NFL owners have no interest in bankrolling it. The NFL pulled the plug, the financial plug, on the World League, which actually was supplying them players. A women's league would not be supplying players to the NFL, so if the owners can't benefit, they're not going to want to be involved. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Ron, how about out. if those women's players were football fabulous females?
4: Whoa, and well, now we're talking about a
3: whole different encyclopedias, as uh, <laughs> Coach Parcells would say. Uh, you know, once there, you know, there was a league called the National Women's Football Alliance that went from 2001 to 2009. Uh, in fact, the Massachusetts Mutiny played for the title in 2002 and uh, unfortunately got whipped by uh, Goose's Detroit Danger in that uh, big contest. <laughs> uh, uh, but i got to tell you, that league... Had my all-time favorite football team name. And what was it? What was it? The yeah. Ventura Black Widows. Do you know what black widows do, Clark? They mate, yeah. and then they kill their mate. I've had some <laughs> friends who were married to people like that. <laughs> <laughs> the black Ventura Black Widows. Think about it. Yikes. You're
1: like somebody's got inside information on that, Ron. Just think
3: of the T-shirts. Wow, that'd be great.
1: Well, even if they did try to start a league like this, I'm not so sure. Forget the Black Widows; the L.A. Dandelions is going to make it either. Uh, I don't know about that. Not today. Um, Anyway, let's move on um, to a league that, well, has and and made it, and and that would be... The National Football League. We've been around for a long time. Now, I want to talk to you guys about longevity. We've talked about it before in this show. but particularly Me too. I love
3: and,
1: it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do too.
3: I, I was to 30. I didn't care. But now I'm looking for a lot of longevity. In me.
1: We've all got it right now. Let's keep it. Um, but I want to talk about longevity as it pertains to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Oh. Because when we were talking to Ronnie Barber earlier, that was a subject of conversation. And I do find it intriguing. It's a question that's always been before us, but seems to me and it's now more than ever, simply because of the Terrell Davis induction. So um, let's get this out in the open and just hear what you have to say right now about uh, the value of longevity to a Hall of Fame candidacy, and and if it is or should be a factor in reaching Canton. So, Goose, I'll start with you. A basic question. Where do you stand on longevity and its role in a Hall of Fame
4: candidacy? I think sustained excellence is what you want in a candidate. A uh, Tony Gonzalez going to 14 Pro Bowls. A Walter Payton named all decade teams for both 1970s and 80s. A Peyton Manning winning five MVP awards. You want to look at a player's resume and see more than two, three, or four years of excellence. Mm-hmm. You'd have to build another wing Canton to house all the busted players who had two or three great seasons. It's the players with eight, nine, and ten great seasons that separate themselves and belong in Canton.
3: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Look, uh... To be Gail Sayers was the he was the cutoff line seven right. seasons five Hall of Fame seasons uh, and once you get down to four total seasons and two perhaps arguably Hall of Fame seasons which I I would say was Terrell Davis's resume uh, well then you can start putting a lot of people in there who are like Haley's Comet you know they they shot by for a minute bright as hell and then they disappeared but as Tony Dungy has said uh, and you guys have both heard him say it many times. Uh, Big part of ability is availability. If you aren't available for too long, then you aren't a Hall of Famer. Uh, if that's not the case, then Priest Holmes is a Hall of Famer, and Bert Jones is a Hall of Famer, and uh, you know uh, the three of us might have had a Hall of Fame moment or two. You know, if you look hard enough. I mean, it <laughs> just most careers, to me, regardless of length, uh, I'd say five Hall of Fame seasons and uh, seven total seasons. That should be yep. the, the Mendoza line, or oh, In this case, it would be the Gale Sayers line.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ron, because it seems to me that there are really two ways of looking at this. It, it can skew a candidacy, as will be the case, for instance, of a Frank Gore um, or was the case of Jerome Bettis. I mean, guys that aren't necessarily dominant players, they're really good players, but they stick around long enough to pile up big numbers. I mean, which... What score now, like the fourth leading rusher of all time? Um, Or it could go in the other direction. It could be a deterrent because a player didn't last long enough to give his career a chance to breathe. And when I say that, I mean go up and down and up and down. You know, you just get three great seasons, you're gone. Oh, whoa, you know, Hall of Fame. No, I'm just sort of wondering where you stand on that, Ron.
3: Well, I think both those things are are, are true. But uh, uh, I I would say this about long-term production. Uh, of the kind you just talked about with Gore and Bettis, uh, when you have that kind of uh, uh, extended period of playing time, it's because you were superior for a long time. Otherwise, they don't keep you around. They're not going to pay you uh, to, to gain you know 395 yards uh, of you know for seven seasons at the end and i understand what frank gore is not who you first think of among his peers when you're saying who are the great runners of his era but consider this uh, only nine players in nfl history have rushed for a thousand yards or more in a season eight times i mean eight players rather seven of them are in the hall of fame gore is the is the eighth
4: longevity counts You know, many years ago when I was a newcomer on the committee, one of the voters pulled me aside and told me his guideline. Was this candidate one of the two or three best at his position during his era? And that's the sticky point with, course, candidacy. Was he ever one of the two or three best at his position during those 14 seasons? He finished in the top five in rushing just once in his career. His peers were LaDainian Tomlinson, Adrian Peterson, Sean Alexander, LaShawn McCoy, Chris Johnson, all players who won Russian titles. Then there's Jamal Charles, Steven Jackson, Clinton Portis, Marshawn Lynch. When you figure out where Gore fits in that cluster, you'll have a better handle on his Hall of Fame chances.
1: Yeah, uh, but nevertheless, he does have that longevity that we're talking about here. And and I want to go back to sort of what I mentioned earlier. I don't think People understand, uh, you know, generally, but I, but I, I hope they do. There, there is no way, guys, and you know it because we talk about it all the time. There's no way of overstating the importance of the Terrell Davis situation and and, and how it changed all Hall of Fame candidacies and, and how they're viewed now. Don't you agree? I mean, it, to me, Goose, it, it was a it was a defining moment when when he got in on such few years that all of a sudden it opened the door for a lot of guys we never would have considered.
4: Yeah, I believe it lowered the bar. Davis had three Hall of Fame caliber seasons. Now, anyone who's had three great seasons can clamor for Hall of Fame consideration. Davis is their precedent, and it's a dangerous one for voters. I still want to see the guys with eight, nine, and ten Pro Bowls and first-team all-decade acclaim get those busts. In my eyes, it's about continued and consistent greatness. And like Ron said, you know, Priest Holmes, there, there's a lot of players that had three great seasons that now, based on Terrell Davis, deserve to have their their cases discussed.
3: Yeah, I can remember, uh, um, and uh, for the purposes of full disclosure, I did not vote for uh, Terrell Davis um, for just the reasons we're talking about. And if you guys remember, that uh, day the discussion was was going on, um, one of the voters uh, rattled off the three best years of Clinton Portis's career and they were within a, a hundred and some odd yards of yeah. what Terrell Davis did in his three best seasons. Did you ever for one minute sit in a press box thing and look down on the field and say, hmm, Clinton Portis, future Hall of Famer?
1: Yeah. Well I, I think what swung that conversation that argument as you guys know was the postseason record when they brought that forward and said you know when when games mattered, when big players have to develop and they have to uh, demonstrate big games and, and uh, come through in big games he did it in a big way and I, and I thought that was sort of the compelling argument that swung that vote in his favor.
3: Well, he did but you know the the the, the, the underside of that uh, the dark shadow of that is had he played uh, a normally length career. He very likely would have been in quite a number more uh, playoff games without John Elway, for example, and those numbers would have come down. So the breadth of his career, the shortness of his career, rather, actually helped him in, in that little area. It's a pretty small sample size. Yeah, no, that's right. That,
4: that, I mean, he was so great I in those games,
3: it, don't get me wrong, but you know, a lot of guys were great in games if they don't play too many. Um,
4: yeah, guys that have long enough, careers have the guys that have long careers have natural downsides. They, they kind of slide right. to the finish line. He never had that downside. We're, we're yeah, asked to I, judge him on three great seasons without ever seeing the back end of the career.
5: Well,
1: and I think a good example of that is Eli Manning, frankly, after the 2011 season. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not so sure, because it hasn't been much of anything except mediocrity since then. Um, And I guess, Rhonda, I'll go back to your point earlier about the uh, Mendoza line or the Gale Sayers line. When is enough enough? I mean, we have Tony Baselli on the cusp of getting to Canton, and he played in 91 games. We have Rob Gronkowski, who some people say should be first ballot choice. Sorry, but they say that. Um, And he hasn't played a complete season since what? 2011? Right. So, where do you draw the line? And, Ron, I think you said you draw it at, what, five? Five, uh,
3: five Hall of Fame seasons and seven, of seven seasons. seasons of sort of surviving the game. Because, because I think if you would, I would argue, if you look at uh, Probably half or more than half of the Hall of Famers in the Hall of Fame, they probably had five or six really great seasons. You know, if you're going to play 10, 11, 12 years, you, you know, you're not going to be able to sustain that uh, forever. It's how bright did they burn when they were at their best and how well did they play uh, after that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the only caveat I would say is for the uh, very early years, uh, say um, from the 60s, 50s, 40s, back then. Yeah, you know, guys were getting out in five or six years to get a paying job. Right. Completely different. No no one's been doing that for a long time. If you're getting out, it's because somehow you couldn't survive. And, and I, I think that we have to factor that in, in my opinion. How about you, Goose?
1: <laughs> well, I know we had NFL historian John Turney on here last week talking about it, but, but I think he's right when he says this is the highlight generation. And, and I don't think... Those fans are as much consumed by career numbers of longevity with candidates as much as they are about highlight reels and sports center headlines. They remember the guy who made the one-handed catch, Uh, not the running back who scored 18 times and led his team to a Super Bowl, a guy who played 15 seasons. So I I think there's a a, a sort of shift in how we perceive some of these players, Ron, especially going forward.
3: Yeah, to a degree, although I think maybe we're short. Uh, Short selling, uh, the younger fan, uh, but I, but I get your uh, attorney's point. You're right. I mean highlights. Uh one of the things that hurts the older players is they don't have all these highlight reels to show them in the first place, you know? I mean, guys have been, there were guys making one-handed catches in the 1960s, too, without all the sticky gloves. Uh, yes, you know, right. but you just don't see them. So, R.C. Owens, baby. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just don't see them. So uh, I, I think uh, uh, how you compare players from different eras, uh is, is a big part of all this. Uh, but in the end, to me... Uh, Three great seasons is not a Hall of Fame career. It just isn't.
1: Goose, we've got about 30 seconds. W- what do you think happens when old school guys like us leave the board and younger members sign on? Is longevity less of an issue 10 years from now than it is today?
4: Well, it'll no longer be our problem. You know, we've served our term, done the best we could to right some wrongs. Just as the McDonough's, Cooper and Larry Felsers passed on their problems to us, we'll pass on our problems to others, and it'll be theirs <laughs> to handle
1: Speaking of longevity, guys, we've run out of it for now, just for this segment, so we're going to break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well,
1: we're almost at the finish line, so?
4: That's the two-minute
1: warning. Yep, Ronnie, that means it's your turn to take us home in a two-minute drill, so let's get started.
3: Last year the NFL made 14 billion, but NFL Network just cut 20 million from its budget and canceled five shows. Is the NFL cash poor?
1: Uh, Ron, now it's you who needs a sobriety check.
4: <laughs> <laughs> if you pay your TV commentaries like they're still playing? Yes. Is
3: Viking tight end Matt Rudolph headed to being a salary cap victim in Minnesota? I sure hope so. Pat's can use him, Ron.
4: Matt Rudolph, yes. Kyle Rudolph, no.
3: That's right. Whoops. Oh, good one. Yeah. Good catch. That was a test. Okay, if he does get released, Kyle and his brother Matt, are they headed to be the new Gronks in New England? <laughs> he was hoping so. I want Kyle. I don't want Matt.
4: <laughs> if he's the new Gronk, and Gronk is that easily replaceable, don't look for the old Gronk to be a first ballot Hall of Famer.
3: <laughs> Darren Woodson is out at ESPN after 14 years. Is he headed to Talk of Fame Network? Well, maybe, except we just cut $200 from our budget, so we can't afford him.
4: He already has status as a two-time guest. <laughs> yes, he do.
3: Cardinal rookie quarterback Kyler Murray said his dog be barking. His feet hurt after his first practice because he had the wrong cleats. Do the Cardinals need a team cobbler? No, the quarterback who knows the difference between baseball cleats and football cleats. <laughs>
4: You mean they wear anything other than golf spikes in Phoenix? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Steel, the rookie running back Benny Snell keeps saying he's playing Benny Snell football. Will he be playing NFL football in September? What the heck is Benny Snell football? If it's anything like Benny Hill
4: football, I'm all in. Forget Benny. He needs to start playing Matt Snell football. <laughs> Ooh.
3: Miami just handed cornerback Xavier Howard a six-year, $76 million contract with thirty-time thirty-nine $39 guaranteed. Did they jump the gun on a guy who's been
4: to one Pro Bowl or get ahead of the curve?
1: I think they jumped the gun. My guess, Ron, someone thought they were paying Xavier Hollander. <laughs>
4: Curly, Moe, and Shemp Howard aren't worth aren't worth seventy six million combined. Much less Xavier.
3: <laughs> Ram coach Sean McVay says he overanalyzed the Patriots in in the past Super Bowl, but after the game, he said he didn't expect them to play much zone coverage. So, did he overprepare or underprepare?
1: You got our coach Ron, pure and simple.
4: If that's the case, why are about twenty NFL teams looking for that next Sean McVay? That's the end of the game. Like to hear this or any
1: podcast, just go to our website, talkfame network.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.